Several years ago, I had the privilege of speaking at a Bible conference in Florida. And in one of my messages, I mentioned the fact that in November of 1947, the General Assembly of the United Nations passed a resolution to the effect that the land that the Romans had renamed Palestine was to be divided into two divisions. One division to be given to Arab people for an independent Arab state, the other division to be given to Jewish people to reinstall their ancient nation of Israel back in their ancient homeland. At the end of that session, four men marched to the front to confront me and said, the United Nations never issued uh, permission for Jews to go into the Middle East and set up a new state of Israel. They said the Jews had no governing authority whatsoever. They went in there, they drove the Arab people out of there, the Jews have no right to be there, they ought to be driven to the Mediterranean Sea. I said, how can you say the United Nations never passed that resolution? The history books record that they did it. They said, doesn't matter what the history books said, that never happened. I said, you go to the UN headquarters in New York and get out the, the original copy of that decision. Doesn't matter if it's there, that never happened. They said the Jews had no right to go in there. Again, they ought to be driven to the Mediterranean Sea. I, I was astounded. These were Christian men. But I found out Christian Reformed. Christian Reformed, uh, followers of covenant theology from the Grand Rapids, Michigan area. Michigan area. This, what they're expressing is what is called replacement theology. Replacement theology. And simply put, replacement theology is the view that because Israel rejected Jesus as its Messiah and his first coming, God has forever rejected the nation of Israel. It's no longer his people, and therefore he has no present or future plan for the nation of Israel whatsoever, and therefore the Jews have no right to be there in the Middle East. They ought to be driven out and scattered among the nations, scattered among the nations. Simply put, that's what is called replacement theology, and what they say is, in place of Israel, God had brought the church into existence. He's replaced national Israel with the New Testament church. And so the church today is the Israel of God today, is the Israel of God today. I have an article at home by one of the major advocates of this, R.C. Sproul, and the first sentence in the article is, we are not dispensationalists. Halfway through the article, he says, when people say, well, what about the Jews? He says, here we are. We are God's Jews today. We are God's Israel today. There was a Jewish believer who wrote to him and said, too bad you were to the streets of Berlin in 1943 saying, here we are, we are the Jews. If you had, you wouldn't be here today. Wouldn't be here today. Now, let me point something out to you. Although covenant theology people hold to replacement theology, that replacement theology did not begin with them. This whole idea that God has rejected Israel, replaced it with the church, began within 100 years after the apostles were off the world scene. Within 100 years after the apostles were gone, this began to be taught, that God's done with Israel, or the Jews, he's replaced it with the church. And I'm gonna give you, uh, as briefly as I can, some history with regard to this, and uh, address some other issues related to it. But Within 100 years, once the, the majority of people now that were in the church were Gentiles. I hope you're aware of the fact that for the first several years of existence, the church was totally Jewish in membership. 
And, but then as the Jewish believers were persecuted by the unsaved uh, Jews, they were scattered, and as they went out, they began preaching the gospel to Samaritans and then to Gentiles. And so by the end of the first century, the majority of people in organized churches were Gentiles, and the people of Israel were a minority by that time. So I'm just going to name and give some uh, quick quotations to some of the early Gentile church leaders who were strongly anti-Semitic in their thinking, and they began teaching this replacement theology. For example, Justin Martyr, who lived from 100 to 165 A.D., who wrote defenses against Jewish unbelievers who were attacking uh, the gospel and all the rest, Justin Martyr claimed Christians are, quote, the true Israelitic race. We Christians are the true Israelitic race. It's not the Jews who are the true Israelitic race. We Christians are the true Israel, the true Israelitic race. And he claimed that the biblical expression, the seed of Jacob, which means the biological descendants of Jacob, you know, he, Jacob fathered 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what the Bible calls the seed of Jacob, uh, literal Jewish people. He began saying that the biblical expression of the seed of Jacob, when properly understood, now refers to the Christians, not to the Jews. We are the seed of Jacob. We are the Israel of Jacob uh, in the world today, not the Jews. Here's another early church leader, Tertullian. Tertullian lived from 145 to 220 AD. He was a prominent church theologian in North Africa. By the way, before Islam began in the 600s AD, there were thousands of churches all across North Africa. And, uh, and Tertullian was one of the prominent church theologians there. He reinterpreted the interesting situation that God expressed to Isaac and Rebekah of how he was going to deal with their two sons. Remember, uh, Rebekah gave birth to twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau came out of Rebekah first. He was the older. Jacob was the younger. And God said, in the future, the younger one will have rule over the older one. And the older one, Esau, will end up serving Jacob. Well, what Tertullian did was he gave a new interpretation of that. Since the Jews originally were the people of God, they're the older ones. And now the New Testament Christians, they're the younger ones in relationship with God. And so God there, when he said that the, uh, the older one would serve the younger one, therefore he's saying the Jews, by God's will, are to end up serving the Gentile Christians, the Gentile Christians. And the Gentile Christians are to have authority over the Jews, authority over the Jews. And by the way, some other church leaders began giving that same interpretation of the whole concept of Esau and Jacob. Esau represents the Jews, the older ones that belong to God. Jacob represents the, the new Israel, the Christians. And therefore, the Jews are now to be serving the Christians here in the world. And the Christians have the right to dominate and control the Jews here in the world. Then there was a man by the name of Origen, uh, he lived from 185 to 253 A.D., 185 to 253 A.D. He was the president of a school of theology in Alexandria, Egypt, because in his day, Egypt was strongly Christian. There were no Muslims yet uh, in the world. So he was the president of a school of theology in Alexandria, Egypt, 
And he developed the allegorical method of interpreting the Bible. In fact, he developed about 18 new methods of interpreting the Bible, only one of which was the historical grammatical method. But he's the one that really developed and pushed the allegorical method. And what is meant by that is, when you talk about Israel, it's not literal Israel. It's talk about a spiritual Israel, a spiritual Israel. And therefore, you can't take the words literally for what they say, their common ordinary meaning. You always have to look for some hidden spiritual meaning behind it. And he had a tremendous influence on uh, many other Gentile church leaders to drop the whole historical grammatical method of interpreting the Bible and adopt the view that what the Bible says Israel, that's not talking about literal ethnic nation of Israel, that's talking about a spiritual Israel, uh, the New Testament church. Let me just give you one other example. Back in these days, there are many more. Cyprian, Cyprian. Cyprian lived from 195 to 258 AD. 195 to 258 AD. He was the bishop of the, the church in Carthage, North Africa. Again, strong church there in Carthage, North Africa. Again, this was before Islam came into existence and wiped out all the churches in the 600s AD across North Africa. He was the bishop of Carthage. And he stated that he, quote, endeavored to show that the Jews, according to what had uh, before been foretold, had departed from God, had lost God's favor, which had been given them in the past time, and had been promised them for the future, while the Christians had succeeded to their place, deserving well of the Lord by faith. He's saying, in essence, God's done with Israel, the Jews as his people, and he's replaced it now with the Christians and the New Testament church. That's the concept of replacement theology, and that began again within 100 years after the apostles were gone from the world scene. Now, let me point out some of the tragic effects of this replacement theology on the church. Replacement theology played a very significant role in producing major changes in two areas of organized Christendom. It played a major role in producing major changes in two areas of organized Christendom. One area was ecclesiology. What we mean by this is the study of the church. How is the church to be organized? How is the church to function according to the New Testament? That's ecclesiology. That's the first area that replacement theology caused some radical changes taking place. Uh, within Christendom. The other area was eschatology, study of future things. Replacement theology began to radically change the whole field of eschatology within organized Christendom. Now, just some uh, samples of this. These anti-Semitic church leaders began saying, since God's done with Israel, ethnic Israel, we're now his new Israel. God must want the church to have some of the things he gave to ethnic Israel. He gave Israel a priesthood. Since the church is a new Israel, he must want the church to have a priesthood. Whereas the New Testament called church leaders elders, pastors, deacons. Well, since the old Israel, who were gods, had a priesthood, he must want the, the New Israel to have a priesthood. In addition, since the old Israel had a multi-tiered priesthood with one high priest at the top 
and different layers of priesthood underneath. God must want the new Israel, the church, to have a priesthood, a multi-tiered priesthood, with one high priest at the top and other layers of priesthood underneath. And so slowly but surely, they began calling church leaders priests, and they began organized a systematic system of authority. For example, they began taking uh, what the Bible called pastors and called them a bishop, a bishop, and they began to say, but now, who's going to make sure the bishops do the job that they're supposed to do? We must have a higher level of bishop over the, the ones in the local churches to make sure they're doing what they're going to do. And so then they began calling those bishops higher than the ones in the local church, monarchal bishops, the ruling bishops over the, the church leaders, what we call the pastors or elders within the churches. Monarchal bishops, okay. But then who's going to make sure all the monarchal bishops do their job properly? So then what they did was they inverted a new level of bishops called metropolitan bishops. They would take the bishop of the largest church in the largest metropolitan area of an area of the world, and they put him in authority over the monarchal bishops to make sure the monarchal bishops could do what they're supposed to do. Then after a while, they said, well, who's going to make sure the metropolitan bishops do their job rightly? So then they invented a higher level called archbishops, in other words, ruling bishops, over top of all the, the metropolitan bishops. All right, but then who's going to see to it that all the archbishops do their job correctly? So then they invented a higher level called cardinals to make sure that the archbishops would do their job. Well, then who's going to make sure that the those men, the cardinals, do their job. They finally appointed one man, put authority over him, the Pope. The Pope. We're simply, since we're the new Israel, we're simply doing what God must want us to have, like he did to ethnic Israel, ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel. Then they began saying, well, God gave ethnic Israel continuing blood sacrifices continuing blood sacrifices. You know, they, if there was sin, they'd bring animals to the temple and have the priest sacrifice, you know, for the forgiveness of their sins. Well, since now the church is the new Israel, God must want the new Israel, the church, to have continuing blood sacrifices. But we can't do it animals. So slowly but surely, and it took several centuries till it finally became official dogma, slowly but surely they began introducing the idea that every time Communion is observed as a miracle takes place in which the bread is converted into the literal flesh of Jesus Christ and the wine is converted into the literal blood of Jesus Christ so that every time communion is observed, Jesus is being sacrificed again and again and again and again for our sins. In violation of what the scriptures clearly say, Jesus died once for all, never to die again. Paul makes that very clear. In Romans 6, the book of Hebrews makes that very clear. He died once for all, never to die again. The idea of continuing blood sacrifice of Jesus is saying that his death on the cross wasn't all that was needed. He didn't complete the work of our salvation from the penalty of our sins once for all when he died on the cross of Calvary. And so this began to radically change the ecclesiology of the church, the way it's to be functioning, and the, the type of leadership and authority it's to have 
within the confines of the organized church. But then it also radically changed its eschatology, the church's eschatology. The original view of the church as you know, and this goes back to what God revealed through the Old Testament prophets, what Jesus taught, what the apostles taught. The original eschatological view of the church was called Chiliasm. C-H-I-L, yeah, C-H-I-L-I-A-S-M. That's from the Greek word 1,000. The Greek word for 1,000 was kilioi. So the original eschatological view of the church, what's going to happen in the future, was called Chiliasm. It's a view that Jesus Christ is going to return to the earth in a glorious second coming, and he's going to rule the world politically for 1,000 literal years. Chiliasm, 1,000. That was the original view of the church taught by the apostles. And even for the first two or three centuries of church leaders as well for eschatology. But some of these Gentile church leaders, after a while, when he come up like to the late 300s, early 400s AD, said, hey, the Jews believe that. The Jews believe that Messiah is going to come and he's going to rule the world for the last days of world history, rule it politically. And so some of us said, but because that's a Jewish view, we have to reject that because it's Jewish. And so we have to couple with a new view of what God meant when he foretold a future kingdom of God here upon planet Earth. And they began struggling with that. And the man who really kind of organized this opposite view was Augustine. Augustine, who was a very prominent church leader in North Africa, again, when Christianity was strong across North Africa before Islam swept across it in the 600s and wiped out the churches. Augustine lived from 354 to 430 AD. 354 to 430 AD. He was the Bishop of Hippo, H-I-P-P-O in North Africa, and became very influential within the church. And Augustine, because of the influence of anti-Semitic views and because of the influence of Greek philosophy upon his thinking before he became saved, came to the conclusion that it's not a literal 1,000-year reign of the Messiah upon the earth that's going to happen in the future. Instead, when the Bible talks about the future kingdom of God, it's talking about a spiritual form of God's rule. A spiritual form of God's rule in the world. And he began applying the allegorical method of teaching of the Bible when he came to future events being foretold in the Bible. And he applied the allegorical method to the interpretation of the prophets and also to the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we can't take what Revelation is saying literally. You have to look for hidden spiritual meanings between what the book is saying there, the book of Revelation. He developed a whole new eschatological view called amillennialism, amillennialism, amillennialism. Again, ah means no. So no literal 1,000-year millennial reign of God's Son, the Messiah, here upon planet Earth. And he introduced the idea that the church is the kingdom of God foretold in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and foretold again in Revelation 20. The church, the New Testament church is the kingdom of God foretold in Daniel 2 and 7 and Revelation chapter 20. 
And he was the first person to teach the idea that the organized church is the present-day messianic kingdom upon planet Earth. The church is now that future kingdom of God that God foretold through the Old Testament prophets. And uh, interestingly, the Roman church grabbed hold of that, particularly. And the Roman church said, the Roman church is the future kingdom of God foretold by God through the Old Testament prophets. And therefore, since the kingdom of God is to have absolute authority over what goes in the world, that means since the Roman church is that future kingdom of God foretold in the Bible, then the Roman church has God's absolute authority to administer God's rule over the world. And therefore, it has the authority to set up kings or rulers or tear them down again. And this radically changed the whole direction of history in Europe, in Europe. And after a while, the Roman church became a powerful religious political machine that dominated every aspect of European life in the western part of Europe, right up through the Middle Ages. So this whole concept of replacement theology prompted major drastic changes within organized Christendom, organized Christendom. Now, what were the effects, the effects of replacement theology on the Jews? The effects of replacement theology on the Jews. Replacement theology played a key role in the persecution of Jewish people by the Roman church and political rulers who were uh, you know, in league with the Roman church for centuries to come. And tragically, throughout the Middle Ages, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Jews were slaughtered in the name of Jesus Christ. They were called Christ killers, Christ killers, all across Europe. When the Crusaders marched from Western Europe, going even over through the central and eastern part of Europe, supposedly to get down to drive the Muslims out of control of the land of Israel, when they came to towns and cities of Jews, they just eliminated all of them, men, women, and children, destroyed them. If they didn't kill Jews, they would often take Jewish children away from their parents and put them in, quote, Christian homes so these Jews would become Christians. It was just a horrendous, horrendous, horrendous time for the Jewish people. And in our book over here, we call the coming apocalypse, we give all this history even more than we're able to give now. And I just give instances, and this is just a survey. Many others could be given instance after instance after instance, country after country after country, how Jews were slaughtered, were driven out of their countries, and had to try to find another place where they could, could dwell here in the world. Slaughter of Jewish people in the name of Christ, that said, we're killing you because you are Christ killers. <laughs> How can you say that? I mean, they're dealing with people now that live centuries after Jesus was killed. Those Jews didn't kill Christ. They didn't kill Christ, and yet they were killed, slaughtered as Christ killers. Now, you know, in the 1500s, the Protestant Reformation took place. 
And uh, although the, the Protestant reformers rejected a lot of the teaching of the Roman church, interestingly, they didn't reject all the teaching of the Roman church. And one of the teachings they, they held on to was that of replacement theology, the Protestant reformers held on to the concept of replacement theology. God's done with literal Israel and the Jewish people as his people, and the church is now God's Israel. And uh, now, that's not to say that all the reformers advocated persecution of the Jews. Not all of them advocated it. But one of the reformers did. And this may stun and shock you. That reformer was Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Martin Luther, at first, as a, the one that started the Reformation in Germany, told his people, be kind to the Jewish people. Go out of your way to do things for them. And bring them food if they need it. Help them in other ways, because we're going to win them to Christ by our kindness. But it didn't work. And as a result of it didn't work, Martin Luther became hateful of the Jews. And he began teaching from the pulpit and put into writing some of the most hateful vitriolic language ever stated or put into print by church leaders. And he began saying to his people, burn their synagogues, destroy their houses, outlaw their public worship, deal with them mercilessly, and you know what happened? This was one of the things that helped lay the foundation for the Holocaust of World War II. Sometime, if you get on the internet, type in Luther, Hitler. Luther, Hitler. You will get reams and reams and reams and reams of material about the relationship between Luther and the Holocaust of World War II. Adolf Hitler publicly called Luther our great national hero, our great national hero. And some of the key leaders of Nazism actually used the writings and statements of Martin Luther to tell the German people, even our great spiritual leader Luther said, these Jews are the scourge of mankind, and the sooner they're eliminated from planet Earth, the better off the whole world will be here in our day, in our day. Tragic, tragic, tragic result of this whole concept of replacement theology. Now that's past, even World War II. Let me tell you some of the effects of it today that's going on in our country as well as other places around the world. I point out that uh, with regard to Europe, in the opening decade of the 21st century, that's the present century we just came into, the year 2000. The opening decade of the 21st century, strong expressions of anti-Semitism began to rise in Western European nations as well as in North America, as well as in North America. For example, France, just within maybe the last five or six years, has experienced large anti-Semitic demonstrations in major cities and sometimes involving burning of synagogues and desecration of Jewish cemeteries. And our missionaries in France have witnessed some of this, and they have told us that 
uh, older Jews who somehow by God's grace managed to survive the Holocaust, World War II, when they were youth, are now warning their children and grandchildren, get out of France. Because we're now seeing things take place in France that we witnessed when we were your age back in the early 1940s, and you know what that led to. France played a role with other nations in eliminating over six million Jewish people systematically. And so now, it's not a mass exodus yet, but there are younger Jewish families leaving France, and most of them are going to the land of Israel, to the land of Israel. Um, In the United Kingdom, in other words, Great Britain, Jewish students experience anti-Semitism statements and treatment from university teachers as well as students, as well as students. And this one really disturbs me. There's a new alliance of evangelical Christians and Islamists in the United Kingdom against Israel beginning to develop. A new alliance of evangelical Christians, they declare to be evangelicals and Islamists in the United Kingdom against Israel. Uh, in fact, one of the, uh, a vicar of Christ Church of England said that Christians who believe that the Jews have a right to live in peace in their own nation state in the Middle East, the Christians who believe that are, quote, the most powerful and destructive forces in America. If you and I believe that the Jews have a right, the nation of Israel has a right to exist there in the Middle East, this church leader there in England is saying, we are one of the most destructive and powerful forces in America today. Now, let me see you in more specifically on our own nation. There are significant numbers of neo-Nazi, white supremacist, and other anti-Semitic groups that exist and function here in our nation, and they use the internet to spread their hatred of the Jews. A lot of instances where they use the internet to spew out all kind of hatred toward Jewish people within our own nation. Uh, some college and university professors here in the United States communicate anti-Semitic concepts and verbally attack Jewish students in the classroom just because they're Jews, just because they're Jews. And some institutions of higher learning, colleges and universities in our nation, permit anti-Semitic student organizations to operate on their campuses. And they also allow anti-Semitic speeches by visiting speakers on their campuses. Let me give you a classic example. Uh, uh, As as John has indicated, I minister full-time with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. Our headquarters is in the southern part of New Jersey. Rutgers University, major university in the state of New Jersey, several years ago, allowed a pro-Palestinian a student organization on campus to put on a special conference one weekend on the college, the university campus. And they printed and published flyers to send out around that area of New Jersey. And this is what it said. We here at Rutgers University are not permitted to kill Jews. 
But if you come to our conference this weekend, you will learn how you can do it. You can kill Jews. We'll teach you how you can do it, to kill Jews. And the university permitted that on campus. And a lot of our people from the mission and other people went up and picketed the university because of that, you know. This is horrendous, just horrendous. Some church groups in the United States that are theologically liberal, theologically liberal, are displaying anti-Israel bias. For example, in 2003, delegates to the Presbyterian Church USA General Assembly adopted a resolution requesting that the denomination withdraw its shareholding investments uh, from companies that have business with Israel. In other words, that denomination is saying, if you're investing money in companies that carry on trade with Israel, get rid of those investments. In other words, we want to kill Israel by cutting off all trade with them, you know, from other, other parts of the world. In addition, in October of, of 2004, 24 representatives of the Presbyterian Church USA met with leaders of the Hezbollah terrorist groups in Lebanon and together criticized the nation of Israel there in the Middle East. In 2006, the New York Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church also adopted a resolution urging withdrawal of its shareholding investments from companies doing business with Israel and accused Israel of many, quote, illegal and violent activities. Accused Israel of illegal and violent activities. In July 2002, a group of 60 evangelical Christian leaders, they signed their names to it, sent a letter to President Bush asking his administration to stop favoring the nation of Israel in the Middle East, you know, against the Palestinians. And the letter expressed the belief that Israel's settlement movement was unlawful and degrading. And degrading. Now, I, I hesitate to name names, but I think you ought to be aware. James Kennedy, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man, all advocate replacement theology. Of course, James Kennedy is now with the Lord, knows better now. But uh, all these key leaders uh, advocate replacement theology going on. Some Mennonites, who supposedly are very much peaceful, are strongly anti-Israel. We live in Lancaster County where there are a lot of Mennonite people. And uh, there's an organization of the Mennonites there at travel agency, and one of the ladies in our church, we attended a Bible-believing church, was working there. And she said, if you even said the word Israel, the tension would become so thick in that room, you can almost cut it with a knife. And her husband told my wife that I'm hated there because of my uh, position with the Friends of Israel and our speaking out, you know, in favor of, of the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. In fact, one of the last times Ahmadinejad, the president of Iran, was in New York City and spoke at the United Nations, there was a group of Mennonites who got together with him to have dinner, to have dinner there in New York. And so on it goes, the so on it goes, on and on and on it go. In fact, a few years ago, there were a whole group of evangelical Christians uh, who took part at a 2004 conference in Jerusalem entitled Challenging Christian Zionism, 
Christian Zionism are people who support Israel's right to exist in the Middle East. And the highlight of that conference was that they had a meeting with PLO leader Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat. These are the kind of things that are going on. Let me, <laughs> I'm gonna get a little emotional here, forgive me. <laughs> Let me share something with you that was close to me with regard to this. When I was in, in ninth grade, there was a very dear Jewish man in my hometown that had a men's clothing store. And he hired me to come and work for him in the store. And I worked for him <clears throat> all through high school. Very gracious, loving man. I couldn't have had a better boss. Very kind to me. And he started me out just by cleaning the display windows and, and cleaning uh, the, the store and things like that. But then he gradually worked me into selling and everything there. And uh, he had one child, a son. And when I graduated from high school, was gonna go away for school to prepare for ministry and everything. Of course, I had to uh, quit working for him. And the last time I saw his son was way back in 1953, when his son was maybe about five years of age. Never heard of the son after that but I'd carry on correspondence with my boss. And I would send him my book, What on Earth Is God Doing, write to him. We got him uh, Israel My Glory magazine going to him and all the rest. Well, lo and behold, in March of 2007, now the last I saw his son Richard was 53. This is now March of 2007. Richard calls me out of the blue on the telephone. <laughs> And he wanted me to know that his dad had, had died the previous December. And he said, I've been going through the things that he had here at our, at our home, and I saw he had literature you sent to him. I saw he kept letters that you wrote to him. And how he responded to you. He said, he used to talk to me about you. He said, I just wanted to touch base with you. And he said, I, one of the things I want to tell you is I feel driven to find out what is this about Jesus being the Messiah, being the Messiah. And uh, my home church was a Baptist church, very sound, Bible-believing church. He said, I get together sometime with the deacons of that church and interact with them. And he said, whenever there's a ministerial meeting here in the community, I attend. I don't say a word, I just sit there and listen and take in. So we began corresponding back and forth, and I, I tried to arrange a meeting where we could get together and everything, but it hasn't taken place yet. So in light of that, I, I had written a work about 30-some pages of which I just went through the whole way through the Old Testament, all the Messianic prophecies, and showed how Jesus fulfilled these things, sent that together with other literature to him, have continued to interact. But last year, one of his responses to me was this. He said, I want to share something to you that happened to me when I was a boy. And this really struck me as to why he was so intense on finding out what is the truth about Jesus being the Messiah. He said, when I was five years of age, in our neighborhood, and this is a town, Du Bois, Pennsylvania, maybe about 9,000, 10,000 people. He said, some of my playmates asked me to come out and play with them one day, and I did. They tied me to a post. They put flammable things around my feet and they ignited me. 
And by God's grace, a lady came along and saw it happen. She rebuked the children. She stamped out the flames. He said, afterward, I said to them, why have you done this to me? Because you're a Christ killer. You're a Christ killer. It's still with us today, this anti-Semitic spirit and everything. I literally wept when I read that. This is serious, what's going on. And a major thing that's contributed to it is this whole concept of replacement theology. 